Lord, we uh, come to you knowing that we need wisdom, we need insight. Lord, we come to your word as fallible humans, often not understanding and not seeing the truth that you've revealed in your scripture. Lord, we ask that we would be people who are led by your spirit, who walk by the spirit. As Christ said, it is the spirit that will come and be our comforter. Lord, we thank you that we have your spirit to help us lead and discern and understand what you have given us in your scripture. Lord, we ask that you would uh, be with Pastor Randy and Sarah as he is still sick with uh, an infection and lung problems. Pray that you would give Sarah peace and rest, comfort her. Lord, we also ask for comfort for Pat and Nancy's family, the Hermesia family, with Glinda's passing. Lord, we ask that they would be comforted knowing that Glinda has departed earth, but she is with you now. Lord, that those who pass away on earth are not lost, they're not gone. They've just moved on ahead of us, awaiting the final resurrection. Lord, we ask the same for the family of Luann Alexander, having gone to be with you a couple weeks ago. We also ask for her upcoming service that you would have the gospel be clear, provocative, urgent, Lord, that people would hear the good news that Christ has come and made a way of salvation for us who have sinned. Lord, we pray that as we look at your word, that we would see Paul as a picture of what it means to be mature in the faith, that we would learn what it means to model Christian maturity, that we would grow in maturity, that you would lead us into understanding and into wisdom. Lord, help us to be loving, help us to have knowledge and discernment, Lord, we thank you that you've blessed us with a church that comes together to worship you, the one true God. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you're turning with me to Philippians chapter one, I wanted to ask if you've ever had a boss or a coworker or a school teacher, a coach, a parent, or somebody that has without saying much, maybe without saying anything at all, has taught you how to do something without actually speaking the words of how to do it. Had that before where maybe it's as simple as them kind of shaking their head knowingly? No. Or maybe they just take the thing from you and just say, watch. Without saying much, they've taught more than you would have expected. Well, when I was growing up, we lived in Bakersfield, and we had some friends who had a doughboy pool, which, if you remember, kind of like a hard-sided with a soft vinyl bottom, and they had buried the pool in the ground, so it was only like 12 inches above the ground. And so we would run across their lawn and basically just run right into the pool. It was... So much fun as a kid. So when we came to Madeira, my parents thought, we're going to do the same thing. And so we started digging, outlined a hole and started digging. And it was maybe 18 inches, maybe two feet that we hit hard pan. And if you've been in the valley long enough, you've dug and hit hard pan. It's like concrete, 
but harder. <laughs> and so you take a digging bar like this or something, tractors that are billions of pounds and they deep rip with like a single blade and tear it up. They use dynamite, lots of different ways. But if you're just some guy in the backyard, you use a digging bar like this. And we borrowed one from the potters who lived right down the street and Greg gave it to my dad. And one Saturday morning, my dad got up and started digging, which by digging, you just repeatedly hit the concrete as it flakes off and tries to fight back by shooting bits of hard pan into your eyes and everywhere. But my dad was out there for hours in the morning just beating the hard pan endlessly. So I get up and I see my dad and in my youthfulness, I go over and I'm like, let me help you, pops. So I, I take the digging bar and I just like, over and over and over for what seemed like 10 minutes, but was probably like three because I didn't last very long. I was very tired having just done this. You can do this, and this bar is probably 15 pounds. The other one we had was like two and a half inches and it was solid steel. This one's hollow, at least 50, 60 pounds. And if you do that, minutes feel like hours and you're worn out no matter how youthfully excited you are. So my dad came out when I set the bar down and having had a, a lengthy rest of time while I went at it, he came over and I watched him and he picked up the bar, lifted the bar, and then dropped it. So he let the bar do most of the work and he let the muscles of his legs do the lifting and it was much more effective. Watching him do it, I learned and he didn't even need to say anything. There was probably a, a couple looks of like this, you know, like, what are you doing? Who, whose son are you? You know, why are you doing this the most difficult way possible? But by watching, I learned a better way to do it. Use the big muscles to do the big lifting and use the small muscles to just make sure it lands where you want it to land. It's a much better way of doing things. And that's in this passage in Philippians chapter one, that's what Paul is doing. Paul is modeling for the Philippians, and now for us, a better way of doing things. Not one time in this passage does Paul command them to do something. Does he tell them or encourage them or demand that they do something? There's no commands for the people of Philippi who would have first been reading this letter. And yet, even though there's nothing that's told explicitly of them, there's still a lot that we can look at and we can learn as Christians because Paul is modeling what it means to be a mature Christian. So in that idea of modeling, modeling what to do, often matters more than a mandate. Okay, to model something matters more than a mandate. Telling someone what to do and how to do it, and yet not doing it yourself, is hypocritical. However, showing someone how to do something is often more effective in teaching them how they should be doing it. And that's Paul's intention here, I think. And a mature Christian, like Paul is, 
knows all the tools that are available to him. The digging bar, a good tool for chipping away at a hard, rock-like substance. Prayer, thankfulness, joy, perseverance. These are the tools of Christian maturity that Paul demonstrates here in this passage. So let's read together in Philippians 1. We'll start in verse 3. Paul says, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So Paul starts this section and he says, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. And you probably have similar remembrances that Paul is having. We talked about when Paul gets to Philippi, he goes out and probably with Timothy and Silas, they go out, they leave the walled city and they go out to a river and they decide to have a time of prayer. So as Paul and Timothy and Silas are out by the river praying, a woman named Lydia overhears them and hears the gospel. And Lydia repents and puts her faith in Christ and wants to know more. And so she invites these men to come and stay with them at their house so that she and her family can continue learning. So Paul says, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance, like Lydia. Paul also probably remembers the jailer as Paul was continuing to share this good news about Jesus, the people of the city weren't all too keen on it. And so they arrested Paul and they threw him into prison and they beat him. And then there was an earthquake and the man who was in charge of the jail went to kill himself. But Paul puts on the brakes and he says, wait, we're still here. And Paul, when he thinks about the jailer, gives thanks to God for every remembrance that he has of these people in Philippi. And it all started with a prayer meeting. When my parents went to get married, they asked a man that was the pastor if he would marry them. So in 1981, at a small church, they got married. And now, 40-something years later, I read an interview that this man had done in the, the, paper, the newspaper in Bakersfield, and they asked him what happened to the church. The church had gone from 40, 50 people to now well over 10,000, multiple campuses all around, and it's just a huge church now. And so they said, what happened? How did this, what's going on here? And the pastor said, it was a Bible study that got out of hand. <laughs> and I feel like that's what Paul would say. What happened in Philippi? It was a prayer meeting and it got out of hand. <laughs> it started with prayer and they started and Paul's saying, I, I remember these things. And when I remember these things, look what Paul does in the first part of verse three. I give thanks to God for every remembrance of you. That's Paul's modeling to them when I think about you, here's what I do. I give thanks to God. And he goes on in verse four, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. So he says, 
I give thanks to God for every remembrance, always praying in every prayer. Every remembrance, always praying in every prayer. Paul is showing them what it means to be committed. This is a regular ongoing lifestyle for Paul that he is committed to giving thanks, to praying for them with joy, and remembering them in his prayer. Paul is taking these people, their needs, their problems, their joys, the salvations of others that they're seeing, the good and the bad, and he's taking those things before God, and he's saying, God, I love these people. Help them, encourage them, sustain them, build them up. He's giving thanks to God for what they've done and what they're doing. Paul's modeling for us that when he thinks of these people, it moves him to prayer. And that's the first thing that I want to make note of is that when God brings somebody to your mind, like Paul, that it should move us to prayer. When we think of someone, consider that God, through his Holy Spirit, is bringing them to your remembrance, to your memory, to your mind, that you might pray for them. God brings people that we pray for. And then an important thing that I think we often overlook is this letter, because what Paul is doing, he's remembered, he's prayed, and now he's telling them that he's remembered and that he's prayed. So he's thought of them, God brought them to his mind, he's prayed for them, and he tells them, I'm giving thanks to God for you. Every prayer, always praying, every time I think of you, I'm giving thanks to God for the joy that you have. It's so exciting to Paul, he wants to tell them about it. And what an encouragement this must have been to the Philippian church to know that the apostle Paul, who walked with Jesus, has come to them and told them about him. They have eternal life. And now Paul is going back in this letter and saying, here's what you ought to do. I'm a mature Christian. I think about you. I pray for you. And I want to be an encouragement to you. And how often should we do that? When God brings somebody to our mind, Lord, this is what I know of this person. This is what I'm thinking about this person. Text them. Hey, I thought of you today. Just want to let you know I was praying for you. Just want to encourage you. Simple. It's easy. But that's what Paul's doing with this very letter, not commanding that they do it, but showing them the model of how that can be done. And look at verse five, he continues. He says, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. And then he goes into the foundation, the purpose of his thanks and praying. Verse five, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The foundation for Paul's giving thanks for his praying and remembering them is because of your partnership. The people in Philippi, having heard the good news, having repented of their sins, having put their hope and faith in Christ for salvation, have now partnered with Paul in this ministry because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This is the foundation. This is the reason for verses three and four. So we say that Paul is giving thanks. Paul is remembering them and praying with joy because they were good partners for the gospel. Who 
would you consider a good partner for the gospel? Who in your life might be somebody, as Paul thinks about Lydia or the jailer or certainly countless others, he names some more of them later in, the chat, in the, this letter. Who in your life would you consider to be a good partner in the gospel? Who's a partner in ministry? Who would, if you were gone for three weeks, who would notice? Who would notice if your seat was empty and would reach out? Who would notice and reach out a call or text, hey, I haven't seen you in a few weeks. Just wanted to check on you and make sure you're okay. What's going on? And then who would you notice if they were gone for three weeks? Somebody in a Bible study or a small group or a friend, would you notice somebody that wasn't here for three weeks? And you can't, you can't count me. Because if I'm not here and you don't notice, you're probably also gone. So there's bigger problems if you try to say, well, I'd notice if you were gone. It's not a, it's cheating. But if there's nobody that you would notice and nobody would notice you, you probably haven't partnered in this ministry. You haven't partnered with somebody for the gospel. And the Bible is full of people partnering together for the gospel. People who are alone and isolated do not last. God has called us into fellowship. He's called us to sharpen one another, to encourage one another. There's so many commands that are directed at doing this to one another. We see the picture of what God has for the New Testament church in bringing people together to accomplish his purposes. I think one of the things that Paul is thinking about when he thinks of his remembrances of Lydia was Paul and Silas and Timothy, they just went out. They were going out outside the city. They just wanted to pray. The Jews liked to be near flowing water anytime they could to pray. And so that was probably the reason so you got Paul and Timothy and Silas and maybe others, and they go out to pray. And Lydia, sitting downstream, she was a dealer of purple cloth, so she's probably rinsing garments, dyeing fabrics, and Lydia overhears. And she's saying, what did you say? I, I, I want to know what you're talking about. And Paul's saying, yeah, you... You know, Greeks and Romans, you guys got lots of gods, but I know the one true God. There's only one, and there's one true God, and I can tell you about him. And Lydia says, oh, I want to know. Tell me. And Lydia comes to faith. It was easy, seemingly, from what Acts 16 says. And so Lydia just believes. And then on the other side, the two people that we know came to Christ here in their households is the jailer. So Lydia kind of just hears what's going on or maybe the guys share with her that she can have eternal life, but it seems to be easy. And the jailer, on the other hand, is responsible for this guy that they might just murder, Paul, and he's responsible for putting him in the deepest, darkest, dampest part of the jail in stock, so he's probably hunched over, hands and feet bound, and the guy is singing, and he's praising God, and he's praying. That's not normal. Certainly the jailer heard that, and he knew that, and doesn't care. 
the jailer doesn't repent. He doesn't ask questions. He doesn't want to know, why are you guys so happy when we might kill you in the morning? And it takes a literal earthquake for this man to come to faith. For Lydia, she overhears. It's easy. For this man, an earthquake happens and he doesn't say, okay, now there's definitely something wrong. Instead, he goes to kill himself and it takes an earthquake and then Paul saying, don't kill yourself, we're all still here. Then he repents. Easy, hard, and everybody else is somewhere in the middle. For most of us, it doesn't take an earthquake and the sounds of falling rocks and the dust and the debris and trying to find your sword and all the chaos just so you can kill yourself before the Romans come and do it to you to be like, something is going on that is outside of my control, that is outside of these people's control. There's something going on and the God that they're worshiping is powerful. So we have these two pictures of what's easy and what's hard. And Paul's saying, I'm remembering these things. When I came to you, we had this good, easy salvation, but we also endured the hardship. And we came to you and you supported me. He'll say later that you were with me. You confirmed, you defended the gospel in my chains and my imprisonment, that you were partners with me in the gospel. True ministry partners in the gospel. This is so important to Paul that he often keeps them in his mind. He remembers them. He remembers, and when he does, he prays for them because of their partnership. And this isn't the only time that Paul cares about his partners. In Romans 16, Paul lists by name two people. And he says something very specific that they were willing to risk their necks for the gospel. You can imagine what Paul's saying, right? That here was the executioner's block. And these two people that were faithful to the partnership of the gospel willingly would go and lay their necks down you don't even have to tie me down. I'll just volunteer if that's what it takes. And they laid their necks down for the gospel, Paul says. Those are good ministry partners because Paul has known bad ministry partners. If you read Paul's letters, he mentions people by name, Hymenaeus and Alexander, Phygelus and Hermogenes, and even Demas, they all forsook Paul. They abandoned him. They deserted him. So Paul knows what it means to be a good ministry partner. And he says, I thank God for you. Every time I think about you, I thank God. I pray for you because you are good ministry partners to me. They've been that way from the very beginning until now. Good ministry partners. Paul continues in verse six. He gives us a verse that most of us are familiar with. He says, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion 
until the day of Christ Jesus. As Christians, we often like to cherry pick verses out of the Bible and just be like, oh, this is a good one. I'm gonna keep this one. And sometimes we apply it broadly in ways that some verses shouldn't be applied broadly. It's where we end up with things like health and wealth that God will definitely and always do something that he doesn't say he will definitely and always do. But I think with this specific verse, we can cherry pick it and apply it almost broadly to anything that we see God doing because this isn't something that's outside of God's nature. This aligns perfectly with who God is and what God does. Listen to it again. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Pick something of God's nature. I am sure that God, who started your salvation in you, will carry your salvation on until it's complete in the day of Christ Jesus. I am sure that the fruits of the Holy Spirit, joy, for example, throughout the book of Philippians, that the joy that God has given you, that good work that God has started, God will carry it on in your life until the day of Christ Jesus. Because that's God's nature. Paul's giving us a big, broad part of God's nature in a small sentence. Because listen to what Paul is really saying here. Paul's saying that his confidence, his assurance, his own certainty is not in himself and it's not in the Philippians. But Paul's confidence is this, that he, God, that God started a good work in you and God will carry it on to completion until the day that God sends Christ back to earth to redeem his people. This is God starting the work, God continuing the work, and God completing the work. This is not our work. This is God's work that God started, God continues, and God completes. So we can take this and say, God has started a work. God will continue his work, and God will complete his work because it is his work. And it doesn't depend on you. God's work is his work from the beginning, and it's his work till the end. And that's Paul's assurance. Paul's confidence is not that he himself will be able to sustain what God started. God didn't just spin a top and just let it go and see what happens. Paul knows that his surety is that God started, God continues and sustains, and that God will ultimately bring about his own work to completion. And with that, the work doesn't depend on us because it's not our work. It doesn't require us to be faithful because it's God who is faithful. It is God's work in us that he started, that he continues, and that ultimately he will complete. The beauty of that is when you look ahead and the water is murky and the roads are foggy and there are more problems than you can figure out, if you walk faithfully in what God has called you to do, you can trust that the work he started, he will continue, that he will complete. Because when we are faithless, 
he remains faithful. When things seem out of order, we can trust that God, who ordered the universe, is still in control when things seem out of order. God has promised many things throughout the Bible. I think this is what Paul is looking back at and saying that I know that there are things that God started that are his works that he sustains, that he carries on, and he will work to complete. And our role in that is to be sure of this, that when we fail, God is still faithful and his mercy is new every day. When we sin, that he is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we choose to walk away from God, he still is there. God's promises to Paul are certain. As Paul's writing this, he's teaching the Philippians how to think of God, what to think of God. And to us also, he's modeling that God will do what God has set out to do. And with that, we can rest. We can have peace knowing that God's will and God's ways will always come to pass. Let's look back at Ephesians chapter 2. Just flip back a couple pages. I'm going to show you this kind of on a, a different and a more expanded scale here. To a different church, Paul is saying something similar. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says in you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. So Paul's laying the, the foundation, the groundwork here is you used to be like this. You were sinful. You walked away from God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, which you previously lived. And then Paul goes on. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires. That's where we all started. Somebody came to us. God came to us. The Bible came to us. Somebody that God used as an instrument came to us and told us, this is how you're living. You're living in sin. You're dead in your sins. You're dead in your trespasses. Paul says, we too all previously lived that way among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. Paul's saying there's no other way. This is how everyone is. We were all under God's wrath because we're dead in our sins. So much so that every inclination of the human heart is wicked. Paul says we just went and did everything we wanted to do. We were living it up in our own way. But God, Ephesians 2, 4, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. I don't know if there are two words in the Bible that I like more than, but God. Because it's not about me. 
It doesn't require me. God's work does not need my participation for salvation because look, he says toward the end of verse five that God's great love that he had for us made us alive. God's work in our lives of salvation made us alive. God didn't come to us and say, I've got this idea. Do you want to join me in this idea of salvation? And together, we made me alive. That God, having joined me in my good deeds and works of righteousness, we made us alive. That's not what the Bible says. It says God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. God's work continued by God until it's completed by God. We were simply dead in our sins and trespasses, but God. In verse six, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. There's a point to all of this. There's a purpose for God doing this. There's a purpose that Christ came to earth to save miserable people like you and me. Notwithstanding, we're all miserable people. I know because I'm one and you know because you're one. If you think you're not miserable, then you need salvation anyway. So we're going to find that you're miserable at some point, and then we'll all just admit it and we'll move on in the happy but God part. We have been made alive for a purpose, verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace. God is giving us this immeasurable riches of grace. I don't even think Paul has like the right words for it. It's like when you get stuck and you're trying to say something, but you're saying it really badly, poorly, incoherently, and you're like searching for that better way to say it. And Paul's like, immeasurable riches. It's like the greatest thing that you can give someone, riches beyond compare. There's so much of it, it's immeasurable. Paul settles on that. Okay, that's what I'm going to say. It's great, but it's also immeasurable. That's God's grace to us. In verse 8, another verse we all know. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is God's gift not from work so that no one can boast. Again, God's work so that you can't boast. It's not God and you together being saved. It's not by works. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. We are God's workmanship. That means like the chair that you sit in, like the clothes that you wear, like the car that you got here in, somebody claims that as their workmanship. I designed that. I developed that. I tested that. I had this idea for creating this. It is my workmanship. And God is, through Paul, saying, you are his workmanship. Because it is God's work, that God continues, that God completes. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Paul is circling this idea that God is the one who does it. 
And back in Philippians, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's us cherry picking that verse and saying, let's take this verse and apply it out of context because it can be applied out of context because it matches God's nature. It is who God is, even if Paul is not being explicit with it. That makes sense? Now, if we apply this verse in context, Paul's saying, I am sure of this. And he doesn't say what this is. He's just sure of something in this verse. And so to understand Paul's context, we have to go to the previous verses. I am sure of this, which if we read the verse before, the foundation was their partnership in the gospel. So Paul's saying, because of your partnership in the gospel, this is what I'm sure of that God has started a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The good work in context is their gospel partnership. Paul calls this a good work because it's so important to him. It's so important that people have partnered together for the gospel, not for anything else, but Paul is explicit with this. Because of your partnership in the gospel, I am sure of this. The next verse in verse 7 confirms that Paul's still talking about partnership. So we know here that verse 6 is Paul saying, this is such a good thing that God is doing these gospel partnerships that God is working, has started continuing and completing what he has started, which is the Philippians' partnership in the gospel. Paul could have told them, continue in the gospel. Go and share the gospel. Be good partners of the gospel. Don't turn away from the gospel. Be careful that people don't come in and, and arrest you and make you fearful and then make you recant for fear of the sword. Paul has none of those commands for them. He has no direct teaching. He just wants to show them this is what I'm sure of. I'm excited about you. I'm excited for what God is doing in your life. I see this good work because you accepted it. You heard it. And now you're partnering with me for the gospel. That is Paul's purpose in this. I think for us, Paul has a certainty, right? He's sure of this. So where are areas that we are uncertain where are areas that we are likely to doubt? Where we are likely to feel less than certain? Because those are the times that we look back and say, it is God's nature to finish what he started. It is God's nature to complete the good works that he has begun. God does not abandon his good works. He does not forsake his good works. He does not forget his good works. He does not leave them incomplete. What God starts, God finishes. So when we are tempted to doubt, when we are tempted to be disencouraged, discouraged, when we are tempted to feel in a way that we look at and we don't match with Scripture, we can say, I know this is not from God because I'm sure of this, that God's good work will be completed in me until the day of Christ Jesus. And Paul goes on in verse seven. Indeed, 
it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, I have you in my heart. I have you in my prayers. I have you in my heart. I have you in my mind. And here Paul's saying, I have you in my heart. And it's, it's interesting because he starts verse 7 with, indeed it is right for me to think this way about you. It's right for me to think this way about you, that you're partners in the gospel. That I see in you a good work. Paul wants to encourage them because it's right. Now, there may be ways that it's wrong for Paul to think about them. And he could probably chastise himself for saying, you know what, it's wrong for me to think about you this way. It's wrong for me to remember what you've done wrong. It's wrong for me to be unforgiving and not allow those things just to be washed away. But it's right for me to think about you in this way. Why? Because I have you in my heart. The heart Paul talks about is the entrails. It's the bowels. It's the deepest part of the human emotion. That's the way that they described it is the deep part of your intestines. We say our heart. They said your entrails. And what Paul is saying here is, in my heart, you are there. And it doesn't just mean I think about you, I pray for you, and I move on. But Paul's saying, this is a serious and deep affection that I have for you, that I care deeply about you. So deep does Paul care for them that he uses the word koinonia to describe their partnership. Koinonia is a fellowship that is beyond what is possible without Christ. It's a God-given partnership and fellowship and relationship that is only found because two or more people know Christ. There's nothing else that compares to this level of fellowship. And Paul calls this the type of relationship that they have. My wife reminds me all the time of, we are two boats, her and I. We are tied together, inseparable, And if one of us sinks, we both sink. So be it. And Paul is telling this church, if you go down, I'm going down with you. If I go down, you're going down with me because we are one in Christ. We have a fellowship that is not understandable to anybody else, but we have this together because we are partners for the gospel, because we've been saved by the same gospel. We have the same God, the same work, the same completion that we look forward to in the day of Christ Jesus. And he says, indeed, it's right for me to think about you this way. I have you in my heart. We're more likely to tell somebody, I have you on my last nerve. I have choice words for you. Do you really want to know what I'm thinking? I have a special place in my heart for you. Yes, I do. (laughs) 
What Paul is saying, though, is indeed it's right for me to think about you. Like there may be things that we have in our past that you did to me, Paul, or that I've done to you, but it's right for me to think about you this way, that we are partners, that we are tied together inseparably by Christ. You know, in the, I don't know, 1,800 years after the New Testament was living and, and written, for a long time, churches practiced church discipline for non-attenders, meaning if you were part of a church and you didn't show up, someone was coming to your house. If you didn't show up for two weeks, three weeks, you were gone, excommunicated out of the church because you missed a couple weeks. And here's what they knew. When someone stops coming to church, there's almost always an underlying sin issue. So they knew if you're not in church, there's a problem. And we don't want those ungodly problems that are leading people astray and polluting the church. So they would kick people out. Paul is saying that this fellowship that we have, this partnership that we have is that important, that we need to be together, that we need to know that you have my back and I have your back and other people in the church know you and you know other people in the church. That's the koinonia that Paul's talking about, the partnership that he has with them. And when they would have read this, it would not have said partnership. It would have expressed a much deeper idea than two guys who had an idea and decided to form a company and see if it would work. And if not, then no big deal. We'll just go our separate ways. It's not what Paul had in mind. Paul had in mind inseparable ships that rise together, that sink together, that live together, that are together for the gospel. And then look as he transitions in verse eight. For God is my witness, how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Again, Paul is modeling to them. He could have mandated it. He could have told them, you need to love each other. You need to have the affections of Christ Jesus. You need to, you need to, you need to. But look at what he says. For God is my witness of how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. As I was studying this passage, and we're not going to get to the last couple of verses today, but as I was studying this passage, there's almost always like something that stands out that I didn't notice. And this was that part for me, the beginning of verse 8, for God is my witness of how deeply I miss you with the affection of Christ Jesus. For God is my witness. Can you grasp that? The reason is because I deeply miss you and I have this deep affection for you because of what Christ has done. But Paul doesn't just simply tell them, I miss you guys. I love you guys. I'm glad to be with you when I can. I have a heart for you. You're in my heart. 
Paul says, I call God as my witness. God will vouch for me that I deeply miss you and that you have the deepest part of my heart. What a serious gravity that Paul brings to this statement that God is his witness that he simply misses and loves them. Why bring God as his witness if Paul did not so deeply and dearly miss these people with an affection that he has not compared with anything else? God is standing there proverbially saying, yes, Paul really misses you guys. He really loves you. You're important to him. Again, the partnership of the gospel that they have together is the reason for all of this. That they have partnered together for the gospel is the reason that Paul has them in his heart. It's the reason that Paul is willing to say, for God is my witness because we are together for the gospel. That we will not turn away, that we will not forsake what we know to be true, that we are in this together. Can I take you back to the beginning that Paul is modeling for them what Christian maturity is? He's teaching them by his actions and by his words how a Christian is to live. Paul is the mature Christian in this relationship with the Philippians. He may be older, he may be younger than they are, but he knows more of who God is. He has more mature faith. Not age, but faith. And as the more mature believer, Paul is coming to them and teaching them, give thanks when you think about me. Give thanks when you think about somebody. Pray for them with joy every time. Because man, when you find that partner in the gospel, when you find someone who says, you go, I go, and those are times where you say to God, Lord, thank you for giving me people in my life. Sink or swim, we do it together. Win or lose, we do it together. Earthquake or not, we sit in jail together. And he's willing to call God as his witness to show that these aren't just words, but this is Paul's heart for the people. Now, whether we are mature in our faith or younger in the faith, and again, that doesn't even mean that you've known the Lord for long a time or a short time. But wherever we are, there are people in our lives that fit this mold that we can be praying for, that we can be remembering, that when God brings them to mind, that we can pray for, that we can then text them, call them, write a letter, see them at church. We can model these behaviors and this lifestyle of maturity that Paul has. And Paul knows that it's God's work, but it's a joy and it's a blessing to have partners who join together in working through 
and completing the work that God has set out for them to do. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna have prayer partners actually in the back. Today I'll be at the front. We'll have prayer partners in the back. If you wanna pray with somebody, go back and pray with somebody. Come up and pray with me. It's a good opportunity because Paul even, I was reading Ephesians 6 this morning and again, Paul modeling at the very end of Ephesians, he says, pray at all times. And then he goes on verse 19, pray also for me. It's important that we are people of prayer, that we recognize our need for prayer. Paul, the mature Christian, recognizing, hey, I need you guys to pray for me. Pray that the words of my mouth will go out and they'll be clear and that I'll have opportunities, he says. Pray that I will be able to persevere in these trials. Let's pray together. Let's pray with one another. Make that an important part of our lives. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for Paul, for his modeling of what it means to be a Christian, that we might too see that. And whether we are the mature or the immature Christian, that we would see the importance of your spirit bringing people to our mind, for us to pray for them, for us to tell them that they are important to us, that the partnership that we have, the koinonia, the fellowship, is given by you. Lord, we're thankful that we have one another that we can turn to each other in our times of need, in our times of joy, in our times of sorrow, that we can be comforted with the comfort of Christ through his people. Lord, we pray that you would draw us together as a church. Lord, we pray that you would work in a mighty way that the good work that you started, that you would continue until the day that Christ returns. Lord, may we simply be part of your plan seeing that as Paul was detoured, brings him joy, brings him these Philippian believers. Lord, may too we see that your plans, your purposes, that your detours, may they bring joy in our lives in every circumstance. Lord, we ask that you would draw us to prayer, draw us together, draw us as a church collectively to Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.